0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, great to be back with you all. It's been a pleasure to be here um, a few times now and a pleasure to be here today. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Joe. Uh, I want to turn your attention uh, this morning to, um, it's, I mean, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Maybe it's one of your favorite stories in the Bible. Um, it is, it's a lengthy story, so uh, it's in Daniel chapter 3. If you want to camp out there in your, in your Bibles, I will be referencing verses from there throughout the sermon, but for the scripture reading, I decided to just kind of edit it down to a selection of verses, so it might be easier for you to follow along on the screen uh, with me this morning. So let me read this for us from Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. At this time, some astrologers came forward. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar said to the Jews, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? This is God's word for us this morning. Uh, You probably, like me, uh, love stories of resolve, stories of grit, stories where people are just, uh, um, their commitment level is incredible despite the odds. Um, McCartney referenced, right, that this is Reformation Sunday, so Tuesday is Reformation Day. Um, Martin Luther was essentially commanded to bow down before the most powerful institution of his day and accept their erroneous doctrines. And what did he say before them? He said, here I stand. Here I stand. I can do no other. Um Martin Luther King Jr., who was named after Martin Luther, was also a man who stood, didn't he? He said, there are no gradations in the image of God. And when the uh, culture of the day commanded him and everyone else to bow down to the status quo of segregation, he stood. He was a man who stood. Um, When I became a Christian in high school, around 16, this was one of the first stories in the Bible that I encountered in like a Bible study. And I was, you know, totally amazed by, again, this commitment to, despite the potential dangers that these three Jews would stand. And then shortly thereafter, within a year, I believe, uh, the time frame, um, two teenagers named Eric and Dylan walked into Columbine High School with automatic rifles. And um, there was a, a, a girl, uh, Rachel Joyce Scott, I think her name, and she um, was known throughout the campus as being a devout Christian. and She was having lunch on the lawn when these two approached her and said, do you really believe in God? And she said, yes. And uh, it was her last word. And I remember hearing that story in the news, and thinking of this story, Daniel three, and then thinking, you know, as an early Christian, gosh, I would I stand, you know, when the when the when the moment comes, when the test comes, will I stand? Gosh, I hope so. I hope that I'll stand. You know, one of the things that life has taught me, and maybe taught you, is that we don't really have to wait do we for those moments you know every day that you wake up and go out into your world there's a statue there's a statue maybe built by your employer maybe built by your family maybe built by the culture maybe built by you and every day the music cues and you're faced with the question will you bow will you bow before lesser things, lesser idols, or will you remain standing even if there's a cost to you to do so? See, every day we face that test. So the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Bible is kind of a story of everyday life for a Christian in this world. Will you bow, or will you stand for the only one worthy of your obedience and your devotion. So how, how do we become people like that? How do we become people of such incredible grit, faith, resolve, even despite the odds? Well, we're going to look at a few uh, ways that we can become those people that we see here in this text. And here's, here's the first one. To become people who stand, we got to first own our Nebuchadnezzar-like hearts we got to first own that about ourselves. Let's dive into the story a little bit here. Every good story has a villain, right? And we know who the villain is in this story. It's this fiercely insecure, this self-absorbed king uh, of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He's the most powerful man in the world at 600 BC, but yet fears that he could lose it at, at, at any moment. Because you see the chapter right before this in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he dreams of this massive statue and it 's made of gold and, and silver, and uh, the next one I think is uh, 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 bronze and then iron and then clay and, in the, and it, it represents the kingdoms of this world, and then this rock comes and it shatters this statue to the ground and so Daniel is brought to the king to interpret his dream dream Daniel has this miraculous interpretation of the dream. I mean, I don't know if it if it takes a visitation from an angel to figure that one out, but Daniel goes before the king, and he says, well, here's what it means. Those are all the, the kingdoms of the earth, and they're all eventually going to falter. But one kingdom will remain forever, and that's the kingdom of God. And Nebuchadnezzar kind of Wowed by the, this miraculous interpretation of his dream. Nebuchadnezzar praises God. The end of chapter two, he's, he's praising God. Uh, and, and we go, wow, he got converted. He's in. You know, that's amazing, right? What's going to happen next? Turn the page. And here he is building his own statue. This one, though, fully gold, as if to say, this kingdom's not going anywhere. Not my kingdom. That's so what he shoot. Does that mean, you know, is this, is this Nebuchadnezzar backsliding? Or No, no, no. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar didn't get converted in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, he was a polytheist, like many were in his day. And he actually believed that the gods that he pays homage to, that they set him up in power. They, they were the ones who brought him to power right? He was kind of their representative. And after Daniel chapter two, he just realized there's another one that I didn't know about. And so he adds Yahweh to the list and the prayer is kind of his paying homage. And maybe he'll celebrate in some of their festivals just to make sure because in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, the God served him. He just had to make sure he paid them the proper acknowledgements and then they would continue to keep him in power right? And so here he is with this huge statue, and we just go, man, what a jerk, you know? Like, what a pompous, you know? He's, he's self-absorbed. He's insecure. He's, you know, he wants to retain his own power. He's just going to kind of, he believes the gods are there to serve him, and we go, yuck, the villain. But see, I think we need to take a look inward, you know, I think when we encounter Nebuchadnezzar, we, we need to ask ourselves the question, do I treat God a whole lot different than Nebuchadnezzar? See, I too am interested in, you know, kind of my comfort and whatever my prominence is continuing. And when it gets kind of, there are signs of it being threatened, it kind of triggers some anger inside of me and frustration, right? Maybe even rage. Um I too. Um I like to say that I have one god but functionally I have many. There are many things whether it be success, achievement or comfort, pleasure that uh every day that I get up and you know I mean these are these temples aren't just open on Sundays, right? These are all day every day. And I'm prone to bow. I too. Like Nebuchadnezzar, I have experienced incredible moves of God in my life that you would think he'll never be the same. And then you just turn the page, right? And here I am back to building my own silly statue. See, I think we got to start here. We got to own this about ourselves that we We're not too different from this king. And it starts with recognizing that, that, you know, my heart is prone to wander. It is prone to worship things other than the true God. And as we start by owning this and confessing this, we can then invite God's healing in to, you know, give me the sort of faith that I need to withstand obstacles. Because the Nebuchadnezzar heart doesn't stand up in the face of furnaces. It doesn't. It bows to the highest bidder all day, every day. And so we got to start by recognizing how much of me is like that. It still needs repair from God and repent of it. Well, that point was fun. Let's go to number two. <clears throat> okay? If we want to stand strong in the furnaces, before the furnaces, we got to own our Nebuchadnezzar-like hearts. Two, got to embrace a Shadrach faith. Shadrach faith. So King Nebuchadnezzar's advisors, they bring word to him, right? Like, hey, these three Jews, they're not bowing before your statue. So King Nebuchadnezzar summons these three and they come to him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, hey, um, we're going to do this again. (laughs) He's like, I'm going to give you another chance. I don't know if you heard the announcement before, but we're going to strike up the band. And when you hear the music, you're going to bow or you will be thrown into this fiery furnace. And then he asked them this question as the end of uh, my reading earlier, verse 15. I love this question. What God will be able to rescue you? What God will be able to rescue you? This is the question of faith in this story, and it's it's still the question of faith. See, sometimes people think, well, some people have faith and some people don't have faith. No, 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 everybody has faith. It's what is your faith in? What gives you purpose and meaning in life? And what, hear me out, what makes the furnaces of life bearable? However you answer that question is what your faith is in what you're living for. What God will rescue you from the fires? However we answer that question, that's the question of faith. That's what our faith is in. And so we're about to get an incredible, I mean, one of my favorite and a very descriptive definition of faith in their answer. Look at how they answer this question. I don't know who their spokesperson was, you know, rock, paper, scissor, whatever they did, to, you know, who's going who's to answer the king here? But look at this, verse 16. I love this. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. <laughs> it's incredible, Gaul. Uh, amazing. Verse 17, and here's the statement of faith. I want to walk you through it. Verse 17. <clears throat> Follow if you got it in your Bibles. You can, I'm going to take this kind of piece by piece. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. So stop there. First thing they say is our God is able. In other words, our faith is in a God who is powerful. That's the first part of their statement of faith. Our faith is in a God who's powerful. And do you know this about faith? The power of faith is not in how much of it you muster. It's in the object that your faith is clinging to. So even a little bit of faith in a true and living God who is powerful is stronger than all of the faith that you can possibly muster in something that isn't true. True. Or has no power. So that's the first aspect of their faith here. They're, they have faith in a God who is powerful. Look at the next part of the verse. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. That's the second part. And he will deliver us. So the second part of their faith is it, It's they have faith in a God who is good. What they're saying here, see, they, they know God's track record they're looking back and going, well, this is kind of what God does, right? This is how he delivered our people from Egypt. This is how he's continued to deliver us. So we have faith that he will. It's his character. He's good. So their faith is in a God who is powerful, a God who is good, and then look at what they say next. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold, that you have set up. He is able, first part. He will, second part. But if not, third part. You know what they're saying here? We not only have faith in a God who is powerful, who is good, but at the end of the day, He's worthy. He's worthy. They're saying, look, maybe He doesn't show up in a miraculous way to deliver us. That doesn't change the fact that he is the only one worthy of our worship. At the end of our story, however our story's about to go, O King, there is still only going to be one who is worthy, and he is, the, he is the only one that we bow down to. So do you have a Shadrach faith? Do you have a Shadrach faith? A faith that says God is powerful to deliver me. A faith that says, you know, it's what he does. It's his character. I believe he will. He's good. And a faith that says, he's worthy regardless. He's worthy. He is the only one worthy. He is the only one I was made to worship and bow down before. So if we don't have that kind of faith, if we don't have a Shadrach faith, we'll bow. We'll go out into, you'll go out into your world tomorrow and the music will be cued and the statue will be there and you and I, we will bow if we don't see that this is the kind of faith we need to have to withstand the furnaces. So do you have a Shadrach faith? He's powerful, he's good, and he's worthy Do you. So what happens? (laughs) get thrown in the fire. Uh, That's the next verse. Verse 23 sounds like the end of a story. And these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. The end, the grit of three incredible martyrs. But it's not the end of the story, is it? Verse 24. Then the king leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men? Weren't there three men? That we tied up and threw into the fire. Because I see four, and one of them looks like a son of the gods. There's a fourth man in the fire. Now I don't I don't think I don't think a soldier tripped. <laughs> I think, you know, I think there's something more going on here. And and this takes us to our third point. If we want to withstand the fires and be able to stand. We need to own our Nebuchadnezzar hearts. We need to have a Shadrach faith. And third, we need to encounter the furnace God. We need to have an encounter with the furnace God. Come out, Nebuchadnezzar shouts. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego climb out of the fiery furnace unharmed. And so the question this text leaves us with is: Who is the fourth man? Who was this fourth man? Now, scholars, you know, Christian scholars in theology have looked back and gone, this must, have, this must be what we would call a pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. In other words, Jesus before Jesus in uh, His body as we know Him. But this is the presence of God in bodily form in the fire Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't, you know, they'd never heard of Jesus, right? But, but here's something they knew for sure. God met us in the fire. God met us in the fire. He was in there with us. Now, I want you to think about this. God delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he doesn't deliver them by sparing them the fire. He delivers them by joining them, joining them in the fire. You know, it, it's, one of the most, it's one of the hardest philosophical questions uh, and has been. It's not a new question. Maybe you've heard it recently, but it's a question that goes back thousands of years. When I was doing campus ministry, is a question that came up all the time. If he's good, how could God allow suffering? If he's good and powerful, how could he allow suffering? And around and around we could go, and books and books have been written, and, they're, and some more helpful than others, frankly. But at the end of the day, what the Bible teaches us clearly, because it doesn't answer that philosophical question for us in a way, at least in a way that our brains can fully comprehend in this life. But what it makes very clear is that the God that we worship is a God who goes into fires with us. He's a God who goes into fires with us. He meets us in the fires. The Bible's very clear about that. When you pass through the waters, the fires, Isaiah says, I will be with you. He goes through fires with us, doesn't he? I've seen some of you nodding your heads. There are people in this room, right, that you could go and ask them. How did you get here today? How did you end up in this place today? And their story would be some version of I ended up in a fire. And the fourth man was there. The fourth man was there. Have you encountered the furnace God? <clears throat> I remember being in a furnace. And this furnace took the uh the the um the look of a Bathroom floor at midnight, through tears, staring out my bathroom window, looking out at the stars, and I remember asking, and some of you hardcore Presbyterians may not be as comfortable with what I'm about to share, Um I remember staring out this window at the stars and just through tears going, God, are you even out there? And it was like immediately... Feeling a sense of the answer, no, I'm in here. I'm in here. He's he's the Emmanuel. He's the God with us. He's the fourth man in the fire. Friend of mine in uh, uh, when I lived in Los Angeles, he went through um, this out of nowhere um, and it had to be admitted to the hospital. It was an ICU for over a week. It turned out he had cancer. He didn't know that he had had it. He ended up um, in and out of ICU for the course of a couple of months and in the hospital, uh, you know, and then having to be on chemo treatments. You know, we we thought he was going to die. His family members, his friends, he himself believed every night this was potentially his last night. But he ends up on the other side of this fire, and I remember asking him, when he was still in chemo and recovery, but asking him, how did you do it? How'd you make it through it? And his answer, this was over text, so then I I had his answer, (laughs) you know, and we talked later, and I was like, buddy, I saved your answer because of what came out of you. He said, I'll read it for you. He said, suffering is saving me. Frankly, he said, it makes me less of a jerk. He says, kind of like walking in an earthquake, everything around you is shaking, so you walk more slowly and with more meaning, and you grasp at things of real value that help you not lose your step. What better prize for a person? Better than money, a new car. It turns out what you think, this is still him, it turns out what you think is going to fix you often ruins you. But suffering is this friend that reminds you of what's important. In the midst of it, of course, it's hard to see the beauty of it all, but in hindsight, there he is. Who's the he? The fourth man. Have you met the furnace God, the God who meets you in the fire? When we don't have answers to our questions of our trials and suffering, he gives us something better and it's his presence. It's himself. And he gives us something actually even better than that, because, you know, uh, the the God that we worship, the God of the Bible, and this is true of only the Christian faith, but he's the God who not only enters into the fires with us, but he's the God who went into the fire of fires for us, didn't he? You see, this pre-incarnate Christ, this fourth man, this man who looked like a son of the gods in that fire, that wouldn't be his only fire. When Jesus came to this world, he went to the furnace. He went to, you know what the clearest description in the Bible of hell is? There's lots of words for it. There's lots of description. You know what the clearest picture in the Bible of it is? The cross is Jesus taking the full weight of all of our sin. And you know how he went there? He went there with a Shadrach faith, didn't he? He was in the garden and he said, if you can take this from me, please do so. But if not, your will be done. Your will. Ultimately, you are the one worthy. And I will stick to the plan and I will trust you. And he goes to the furnace, and he goes there for us. Dies a, a thousand deaths in one death, and he does so for us, so that when the furnace of death comes for us, we'll walk out of it. We'll crawl out of it into eternal life with God. See, there's there's one who had true grit, true grit that he would be willing to give up everything he had so that we could have everything that we could ever need. So what's it going to be in your life? Is it going to be a statue or is it going to be the powerful, good, worthy, furnace God? That's our question before us. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his story, The Silver Chair, he opens the way, uh, the book opens the way most of Narnia opens, some, some British kids uh, ending up in a magical world. Um, and in the case of The Silver Chair, it's, uh, it's a couple of kids, one of them is Jill, and it's her first time in Narnia, and towards the beginning of the book, she's lost in the woods and uh, becoming incredibly thirsty, and she spots in the distance a stream. Oh, thank God. But next to the stream is a massive lion. Now, Jill hadn't been in Arnia before, so she doesn't know that this is Aslan, the Christ-like figure in the book. She just sees a lion by the stream, and she's dying of thirst. And then the lion begins to talk. If you are thirsty, come and drink, the great lion says. She says, I'm dying of thirst. She said, but would you mind promising not to harm me if I come near? And Aslan says, I make no promise. She says, well, then I must find another stream. He goes, there is no other stream. It was the worst thing that she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. There's only one stream that can fill you and quench you to the point where you can stand when you are facing the fires of this life, and it's the stream that Martin Luther drank from, the stream that Martin Luther King Jr. drank from, it's the stream that um, Rachel Joy Scott drank from. And anyone else who has ever decided, I will bow down to only one. There is only one worthy of my everything. Will you have that resolve today? Will I? By the power of the Spirit in us, we must. You see, we have a fire within us if you're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a fire within us that is stronger than any of the fires we could encounter outside of us. Let's trust in Him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Sending your son, your son to come into the furnace with us and into the furnace of furnaces for us. And we thank you for the promise that we cling to. We cling to for dear life that we are not alone because in Christ. We are not only in Him as our representative, but He is in us. And so guide us today, O Spirit of Christ, guide us. Keep us from hearing the music and having hearts that are tempted to want to take an easy route. But Lord, help us to see, give us eyes of faith to see that Every statue in this world is coming down. There is one worthy of our complete allegiance. And it is the one who came down here for us. Thank you, Lord God. Seal our hearts with this truth from your word today. May we walk in it by your spirit. Amen.